discovering the mission of God. We've been looking at how God's mission has unfolded through the history of man, going all the way back to the time of Israel, how it was fulfilled in Jesus. And for several uh, weeks now, we've been focusing on how it's communicated uh, through what we call the gospel, the good news. And we're in a section of that. There is the definition of the good news, there is the response to to the good news, and then there is the blessings. And we're going to pick up with the blessings of the good news starting next week. But today we finish a two-part series of lessons on the role of immersion in this response to the gospel. When Jesus came preaching, his message was simple. The kingdom of God has come near. If you remember, there was a bullseye that I used to describe what the gospel was. In the middle of it was Jesus, the incarnate God. Out from that came the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What he did in order to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And then the next layer out was the kingdom of God. And so Jesus came, beginning with the outer layer, and working his way toward the center to help people understand who he was and what he did for us at Calvary. And so he comes preaching the kingdom of God, and the question is, how do we respond to this message about what God has done for us through Jesus Christ? And we've looked at several things that we do. We talked about how that we we repent and believe, or we believe and repent. Sometimes, you know, a person begins with repentance. Sometimes they begin with faith. And sometimes they just kind of go back and forth between each other. But we begin with faith, we begin with repentance, we move to loyal declaration. And I use that phrase instead of the word confession. Most of us who grew up in churches of Christ remember hearing you need to make the good confession. That's what I mean by loyal declaration. You know, tomorrow's the 4th of July. It's not unusual at all for people to stand up on the 4th of July, put their hand over their heart, and say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. This incredible pledge of allegiance to what our nation is and what it stands for. Let me tell you, your confession of Jesus as Lord, I mean, makes that just pale in comparison. I mean, Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords. He is the one who will eventually rule over everything. He brings all things under the authority of God. And then last week, we began looking at immersion. And I used the word specifically, immersion. Now, the reason I did that is because the original Greek word from which we transliterate the word baptism. Baptism comes from the Greek word baptisma. Drop the A, you get baptism. Uh, Or baptizo, you, you change the O to an E, you get baptized. And and our problem is is that we transliterated that word. We simply took it from Greek, we carried it over to English, instead of translating the word. And there was a reason for doing that. Because over a period of time, the word's meaning had changed. And when the kind of the Renaissance came along and people began to go back and study the original Greek, they're like, wait a minute. That word doesn't mean what we thought it meant. In fact, if you just turn to the Greek lexicon, and this is the primary one, Baptizo simply means to dip and immerse. And anyone who will go and study it in the first century context, you can't force into that word other meanings like sprinkling and pouring. We'll talk about that just a little at the end of our lesson today. Now last week what we did was we asked why would God or why would Jesus ask us to be immersed of all things? Why that strange ritual, if I can use that term? 
And what I tried to do last week is to simply go back to the Old Testament and help you understand how Jewish people thought of water. I mean, Genesis 1, verse 2. The Spirit of God is hovering over the deep, and out of that erupts new creation. You you turn over to Genesis chapter 8, and you've got once again the world covered with water, the water of the flood, and what does God do? Once again, the Ruach, the Spirit, oftentimes translated wind, I think it's probably more the Spirit, once again hovers over the waters, and out of the waters of the flood, new creation comes back again, so that Noah and his family and all the animals on the ark could live in that new creation. You come to the book of Exodus, and Israel's coming out of slavery, slavery that Stan kind of talked about today. You know, we come out of the slavery to this world, the slavery to the fall and decay, the slavery of sin. They were coming out of slavery to Egypt. And, and Moses led the children of Israel across the Red Sea. And Paul would say in, in the letter to the Corinthians how that these people were immersed into Moses as the water's on the side and God in a cloud is hovering above them. They are immersed or, as a lot of our translation says, baptized into Moses. And so we are baptized into Christ. And then I finished last week by talking about all the washings that the Jewish people did. You see, immersion was a part of the Jews' everyday life. If you went to the temple, you went through a mikvah and you were immersed. I mean, you immersed before you went into the temple. Probably the same was true of the synagogue. The Dead Sea Scrolls discovered some 60 years ago tell us about how that the Essenes who lived down by the Dead Sea, they would immerse themselves every morning and every evening. Just make sure that they were pure in the sight of God. And so it's no wonder that Jesus comes along, takes that concept so much a part of the daily life of every Jew and makes it a part of our entrance into the kingdom of God. And so what I want to do over our next few minutes is look at what the New Testament the Bible, but the New Testament in particular, says about this role of immersion in this conversion experience. Now, let me say something very important. Listen to me carefully. Immersion in and of itself is worthless. I can go up here and be immersed, you could be immersed, and if all we're doing is being immersed, nothing happens. We get wet, yes, but that's it. Immersion has to be linked with these other responses. Faith, repentance, loyal declaration. It is all of these taken in combination that accomplish what we're going to talk about this morning. And it's very important that you know that. Because if we're not careful, we try to take the word baptize or baptism and make it as if it accomplishes all of this when no, in and of itself, it accomplishes nothing. And so how does immersion play in this conversion experience? I want to begin by looking at John's baptism. Oftentimes we don't pay attention to what John did when he came preaching there in the wilderness of Judea. Notice Mark's account. John appeared immersing, and by the way, I'm still using the TLV, the Tree of Life version. It's a Messianic Jewish version. If you want a copy of it, just get your phone, go to Bible Gateway. It's an app, it's a free app, download it on your phone. And TLV is one of the translations you get for free. But it's a Messianic Jewish translation. In other words, Jews who have accepted Jesus as the Messiah. 
And they've come together and put out a, what I think is a very good translation. And it's one of only two major translations that translates the word baptizo. They translate it. They don't transliterate it. They translate it. And here it is. John appeared immersing in the wilderness. And look at what he's preaching. Proclaiming an immersion involving repentance for the removal of sins. Now that was absolutely revolutionary. Here is someone preaching that if you repent and are immersed, you have the remission of sins. Which every Jew knew, according to the Old Testament law, had to be done at the temple through the sacrifice of animals. In other words, if you want to make atonement for sin, you go to the temple. You don't go to the Jordan River. And all at once, here's John showing up saying there's a new way you can have your sins forgiven. And notice, all Judean countryside was going out to him. All the Jerusalemites, as they confessed their sins, they were being immersed by him into the Jordan River. Now, I want you to notice the components here. Repentance, number one. Confession of sins, not confession of loyalty because Jesus hadn't appeared yet. The confession of sins and then immersion. And these three elements would bring about the, re, uh, the removal, the remission, the forgiveness of sins. Now this plays into our next story. You see, the next text that deals with baptism is a text found in John 3. We looked at it briefly last week. Nicodemus has come to Jesus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. There's a reason Jesus is fixing to tell him what he's fixing to tell him. He says, listen, we know you're a man from God. No one could do the signs you're doing unless God was with him. And Jesus launches into, let me tell you, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. They kind of talk about what it means to be born again. And then Jesus clarifies it with these words. Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God. There's the gospel. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and spirit. Now, why would Jesus bring that up? Why water and spirit? Of course, your mind immediately goes back to Genesis 1 verse 2. I mean, that's how the Bible begins with creation. But you also need to know something about the Pharisees. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and in Luke's gospel, Luke tells us that when all the people heard, even the tax collectors, they affirmed God's uh, justice. How? Because they had been immersed with John's immersion. Kind of a comment on the people who went to John and were immersed by John. Look at the next text. But the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the Torah lawyers not having been immersed by John, declared God's purpose invalid for them. You see, the Pharisees had rejected John. Why? Because it didn't line up with Torah. I mean, the book of Leviticus told you how to get atonement. Here's John out here telling you to get atonement through being immersed in the Jordan River. And so these Pharisees are like, no, no, we're not going to do that, and you shouldn't do that. Jesus comes to Nicodemus and says, oh, yes, you should. Because you're not going to enter the kingdom unless you're born of water and when the Spirit comes of the Spirit. Now I know a lot of people will say, yes, but baptism isn't even in consideration in John 3. Really? Let's look back at John 3. Why don't you look at verse 26. 
21 verses later, look at what John says. They came to John and said, Rabbi, the one who is with you beyond the Jordan, the one you testified about, which of course is Jesus, look, he is immersing. Again, one of the things that we miss out in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is the immersion ministry of Jesus. John the Baptist wasn't the only one immersing. Jesus and his disciples. And of course, you go on to chapter 4, and it says point blank, Jesus didn't do it, but Peter and Andrew and James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, these other guys did. When people came to Jesus, he ordered them to be baptized. And they were. And in fact, he was baptizing more into his ministry than John was in his. Now, it's the same baptism. It's, It's the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, preparing them for entrance into the kingdom of God. Watch how Paul picks up on that. Paul in Titus chapter 3 says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, not by deeds of righteousness which we have done, but because of His mercy, in other words, it's God's grace, He saved us. And look at the language here. Through the meek they of rebirth... Again, the TLV goes and grabs this concept of going into these baptistries there in Jerusalem and immersing yourself in water. They pick it up and they say, that's part of our response. Notice the mikveh of rebirth. That's how you're born again. Same language used there in John chapter 3. And renewing of the Ruach HaKodesh. Renewing by the Holy Spirit. Born of water, born of the Spirit. And so when you... Combine those two, you have entrance into the kingdom of God. Now notice, this is straight, I I hope you're noticing, this is straight out of the text. I'm not making this up. Watch the next one. This goes to the Great Commission. Now if if you know anything about the New Testament, you have three Gospels that give the Great Commission. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in that order. And what's fascinating is is that each one will focus on one aspect, or in one case, two aspects, of how you respond to the gospel. Watch Matthew's version. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Ruach HaKadosh, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Notice the command, make disciples. How? By the way, that's the imperative, that's the command here in this text. Make disciples, how? Well, through immersing and teaching. And so, becoming a disciple involves immersing. Interest into the kingdom, becoming a disciple. Watch Mark's version. Mark 16, 15 and 16. He told them, go into all the world, proclaim the good news to every creature. He who believes and is immersed. Now, for Mark, immersion is there, just like in Matthew. But Mark's going to focus more on faith. Because notice the next verse here, or the next line. But he who does not believe. In other words, faith has got to be the foundation. Immersion in and of itself does nothing. It's when immersion follows faith. And so if you don't believe, and of course if you don't believe, you're not going to be immersed anyway. And so Matthew's going to talk about immersion. Mark's going to talk about faith in immersion. Watch Luke. Luke then, and by the way, you'll be saved. And then Luke, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, so I apologize for this. Peter, by the way, uses the same language about being saved. If you turn over to 1 Peter 3.21, this is an illustration coming out of the flood narrative. 
corresponding to that, corresponding to Noah and his family being saved through the waters of the flood from the wickedness of the world, notice, immersion now brings you to safety. And that word safety is the same word used in Mark 16, 16. Sozo. You're saved. You're safe. You've been brought from sin into salvation. And so being saved comes from the uh, uh, ex- immersion experience along with these other characteristics. And then here's Luke. And notice that Luke focuses on repentance. It's fascinating, each one going a different direction. Jesus said to them, So it is written that the Messiah is to suffer, rise from the dead on the third day. There's the core of the gospel. And that repentance for the removal of sins is to be preached or proclaimed in his name beginning from Jerusalem. And so notice that again, repentance for the removal of sins. You turn over to Acts, though, and you see Luke lining back up with Matthew and Mark. Because when you turn to Acts, also written by Luke, Luke says the same thing. Notice, Peter said to them, repent. And then notice the last line in yellow, for the removal of your sins. But notice what he places, though, in the middle of it. Repent and let each of you be immersed in the name of the Messiah, Yeshua, for the removal of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh. So why different focuses? And the best way I know to describe that is that depending on where you are on the journey, you may need to be told a different aspect you need to respond to. You know, if I were to go to someone and say, hey, can you tell me how to get from Memphis to Knoxville? What's the quickest way to get from Memphis to Knoxville if I'm driving? I think all of us would say, oh, I-40. Hop on I-40 and head east. Okay, what are you going to go through? Well, you know, depending on where you're in the journey, it's going to be a different answer to that question. In other words, if somebody said to me, okay, if I leave Memphis, what am I going to go through? Where are you going to go through Jackson? Because Jackson's the first big city you go through. But if you're at the Tennessee River, where am I going to go through? You're going to go through Nashville because that's the next big city. Well, I mean, if I'm on the other side and I'm heading up the Cumberland, Pro, uh, Cumberland Plateau, what am I going to go through? You're going to go through Cookville. You see, depending on where you are in the journey, someone's going to tell you that the next phase is this city that you've got to go through. That's basically what's going on in the New Testament. I mean, you you have people who are on the journey, and depending on where they are in the journey, they need to come to faith, they need to come to repentance, they need to make a loyal declaration, or as in the case of Nicodemus, it's time for you to be immersed. And so notice that you get a different emphasis depending on where people are. Paul, when he responds as Saul of Tarsus, he's told by Ananias, what are you waiting for? Get up, be immersed, wash away your sins. And so if you've been washing, uh, watching, the next line of things is for the removal, the remission, the forgiveness, the washing away of sins. A lot of different words all explaining getting rid of our sins comes as we in faith repent, make that wonderful confession and are immersed. Now, one of the things I'd challenge anybody to do is just read the book of Acts. If you read the book of Acts, you see how people respond, and you get it over and over again. Acts 8, 12, up in Samaria, Philip proclaims the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Messiah, Yeshua, and guess what? Men and women respond by being immersed. Acts eight thirty six, the Ethiopian eunuch, 
Philip gets up, preaches to him Jesus, coming out of the book of Isaiah, and he comes to some water. Look, water, what's to prevent me from being immersed? And of course the answer is nothing. Even eunuchs can become part of the kingdom of God. Acts 16.33, the Philippian jailer who puts Paul and Silas in jail, the earthquake comes. He responds by saying, how in the world do you get me out of this mess? Believe in Jesus and notice after he washes their wounds at once, he's immersed. He and all of his household. Chapter 18 the Corinthians, Crispus, the synagogue leader, puts his faith in the Lord. And guess what? He, along with many other Corinthians, believed and were being immersed. And so if you go through the old, uh, excuse me, go through the book of Acts and you see people responding, and it's always faith, it's repentance, it's immersion, it's declaration that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. So we come to Paul. And Paul's different. Paul's, without a doubt, the most theological of most of the writers of the New Testament. I know that's a very difficult statement to say, but he's a brilliant thinker. And one of the things for Paul is that immersion is the moment that one is brought, and, and he uses phrases like into or identifies with Christ. There is something about immersion that says, now you are in Jesus and Jesus is in you. Look at Galatians. Galatians 3.26. For you're all sons of God through trusting in Messiah Yeshua. In other words, it begins with faith. It always begins with faith. And so you are children, sons of God, through trusting in Messiah Yeshua. But notice the next thing he says. For all of you who are immersed in Messiah, into Messiah. I mean, that word there means into or in. You have clothed yourself with Messiah. Now, one of the things that people oftentimes ask is when people in the first century were immersed, I mean, did they come up out of the water I mean, were their clothes all wet? And the answer is no. You took your clothes off, you went into it. it was, they were, these were private places. You went into the water, you immersed, you came up the other side, and then you put your clothes back on. Okay? And, and, and so the image here is you coming up out of the water, and as you're reclothed, this time you're reclothed in Christ. What a beautiful image. And then Romans 6. Romans 6 is what really gives baptism or immersion its meaning notice what paul says or do you not know that all of us who were immersed into messiah yeshua who were immersed into jesus christ watch what happens baptism takes us into him i love this picture I mean, immersion literally is into Christ. That's the, that's the image or the painting that Paul's trying to paint here. And he says, don't you know that all of you who were immersed into Messiah Yeshua were immersed into his death? And what's fascinating is death itself, the death of Jesus, the, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, somehow in baptism we join in that. It's one of the most amazing things in the world. People oftentimes will say, well, baptism is a symbolic act. It is symbolic, but it's also a spiritual act. There is something astonishing going on when we go into the water with Jesus Christ. I mean, notice the language there. We were immersed into his death. Therefore, we were buried together with him. That image of going under the water is the image of a burial so that through immersion into death, not only are we, are we immersed with him into the grave, we're buried with him in that grave, 
Knowing that our old man was crucified with him, our death happens there in that act. Death to ourself and therefore life to Jesus. And so notice, in order that just as Messiah was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a new life. Going back to the language of both uh, John chapter 3 and Titus chapter 3. And so number 6, and number 6 just skipped me, reenactment and participation in a death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Number 5 there is this last item that takes place. Now, a few moments ago, Tim led us in the supper. And the supper takes us back to Calvary. The supper does the exact same thing that baptism does. Both of them anchor us in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's why Jesus commanded both of them. And we just need to realize it's not just a simple symbolic act that you do and it's gone. No, it is this spiritual act you do of going with Jesus into, up onto the cross, into the grave, and then on Sunday morning resurrected anew. Beautiful, beautiful reenactment of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I don't normally spend a lot of time when I talk with people talking about disagreements on baptism. I, I just don't do it. Uh, if somebody wants to pick a fight on immersion, they're going to have to pick the fight with someone else. I'll talk to you about what we have in common. I'll talk about faith in Christ. I'll talk about how that Jesus asked us to do it. I mean, I'll, I'll talk about what the Bible says about it. And so when someone tries to, you know argue with me about this subject I just simply say I'm not arguing about it because when we argue about what divides us that's what divides us instead of talking about what unites us but I do need to address some of these controversies there's three big controversies that have been about baptism for the last 500 years and so let me just very briefly and it's going to be very brief address them number one what about sprinkling or pouring as definitions of baptism and when someone asks me about that, I simply tell them, go back and look at the text. Go back and get a, a Greek-English lexicon and look at the meaning in the first century. Not only is the word baptizo, but it's an intensified word. The word for normal immersion was bapto. But when you really want to emphasize it and intensify it, you add this I-Z-O to the end of it. Baptizo. I mean, it really becomes powerful. Often used for people who are drowned or ships that go down. I mean, it's talking about a real plunging. And that's the word that Jesus used. And so I simply say to people, don't argue with me. Argue with the text. I mean, it did not mean sprinkling. did not mean pouring. That developed about 100, 150 years later for a, for a particular reason. But I try to simply tell people, Go back to the original meaning of the word. Number two, what about infant immersion? I know a lot of faith traditions begin life with, with, with a sprinkling of a baby. And let me say that I appreciate so much parents who want to bring their children up in the Lord. I appreciate that. We've got a baby dedication coming up in August, I think, Blake, if I've looked at it right. I mean, we, we want to encourage people. You make a commitment to raise your child in the Lord. And parents who start down, and, and because of their faith tradition, they do it through sprinkling. Man, I appreciate their heart. But what we need to understand is that we don't have any evidence in Scripture of babies ever being sprinkled. Right the opposite. We have Jesus saying, listen, unless you change and become like little children, 
Children don't need to have sins washed away. They're as pure as you could possibly be. It's only when we begin to sin that we ruin our lives. And so when people say, what about infant immersion? Let me give you one more text. This is a passage out of Hebrews that comes out of Jeremiah. And it's fascinating because it's basically a comparison of the first covenant with the second covenant. Okay, Old Testament, New Testament. And here's what's fascinating about that. In the Old Testament, here's how you became a Jew. Your mother was a Jew. And so if you're born into a Jewish family, you become a Jew. And if you're a male, you become a Jew specifically when you're circumcised on the eighth day. Now, because that's how you became a Jew, as you grew up, you had to be taught who God was. Okay? I want you to notice that. You're already a member of the covenant family, but you have to be taught who God is. But God says when the new covenant comes, it's not going to be that way. You, you, you don't become a member of that covenant family because you're born into it. My mom and dad were both Christians when I was born. Didn't make me a Christian. You see, under the new covenant, only you can make you a Christian. Your parents can't do it for you. Your grandparents can't do it for you. No one can do it for you but you. Look at what the text says. Here's the second covenant. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. You see, if infant baptism was correct, we would have to teach these infants to know the Lord. And Jeremiah says, no, that's not the way the second covenant works. The second covenant works because everyone who enters it already has come to the knowledge of the Lord and has made that decision for themselves, not because their parents made that decision. Chew on that one a little bit. But I think it's a very powerful argument. And then the third one is this. Do you have to be baptized to be saved? I don't know how many times I've had people ask me that question. And my response is, isn't it amazing that you never find that question asked in the New Testament? Nowhere. you got all these immersions in the book of Acts, but not once do you have someone saying, do I have to be? In fact, can I tell you what their response would have been, especially Jews? Their response would have been, you mean only once? They've been being immersed all their life, over and over and over again. And all at once Christians come along and say, you only have to do it one time in the name of Jesus, and that settles it. Really? Just once? Yeah. They would have asked the opposite question. Not do I have to, but do I have to do it only once? Yes. But I've got a better answer, and this is what I tell people all the time. John 14, Jesus said something very simple. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, will come to them and make our home with him. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. And so my response to someone who says, do I have to be baptized to be saved is, do you love Jesus? Answer that question. And that will tell me whether or not you know the proper answer to that question. And so I'd say the same thing to you today. I don't know where you are on this subject. But I'd simply say that if you love Jesus, you want to do what he asks. And by the way, let's get out of the judging business. I mean, one of the questions, I mean, that whole question is intended to put us as judges of people. All of you have heard the same argument I've heard. You know, someone's on the way to the baptistry at the church building, they have a car wreck and they got killed. Are they saved or are they lost? 
And my answer is, my Jesus knows, and when he comes, he'll tell me. And I am satisfied to live with that. You see, I don't sit on the judgment seat, and neither do you. And Paul says, judge nothing before the appointed time. And by the way, it's high time that we in Churches of Christ follow that command as well. And I believe we'll all be better off because of it. Do you need to obey the gospel? Do you need to respond to it? Do you need to put your faith to repent, to make that loyal declaration and be immersed into him? If so, you can do it right now. Let's go. We stand and sing.